and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. And I, I don't know why, Chris, but... I've just got a hankering for some J and B scotch. No reason well, why. Yeah, I just I mean, got, it's been it's been getting worse as this as the months been going on. <laughs> I was in the liquor store the other day and I almost bought a bottle and then you know it's just I keep I don't know somehow it's subliminally I it's I I keep thinking about it. I don't know why it's a mystery. Uh, this is episode five in our Get Me Another Bird with the Crystal Plumage series, and today we pivot back to one of the filmmakers who set the model for the Giallo film, Mario Bava, as well as a movie from another notable Giallo director, Luciano Ercoli. And joining us today is a very special guest and a good friend of the show, writer, producer, director, and founder of Reverend Entertainment, Justin Beam. Justin, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you on again. No, I'm glad to be back. Good to hear you guys and see your faces. Thank you for for giving me the call. I always ask what you've been up to, but I know at least one thing, because it was just announced very recently, that you are working on the special features for Shout Studios' upcoming 4K release of Oliver Stone's JFK. That is fantastic. Yeah, it's that's been a wild experience. It's I think it's my fourth my fourth release working with Oliver. I did The Hand and then his documentary mm-hmm. uh, JFK Revisited about the 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 case and all that's happened since his film and then Natural Born Killers and now JFK. So we have a, formed a strange bond, a very unexpected bond <laughs> over over the course of this experience over the last few years here and it's been a a real treat to spend time with all the people in his universe. And I mean, these iconic cinematographers and Bob Richardson and Hank Corwin, the editor. I mean, these guys, just amazing talents. And the JFK was a, was a huge honor. I mean, there, it's what many consider his, his his grand masterpiece. Oh, it's an amazing. I actually rewatched it relatively recently for another podcast that I was oh. on. And so it's, I hadn't watched it in a while. And it, so it's fresh in my head. And man, it is a it is a hell of a compelling film. Like it's yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. And it, what's amazing about the whole thing is that and what we discussed when we were working on JFK Revisited, which is his recent documentary, sort of bookending the JFK experience for him because so much happened in the wake of his film. Oh, of, sure. Of, of the movie JFK. And that's, it is not uncommon for a movie to have a big impact, but I think it's less common for a movie to genuinely transform history. Yeah. And I think that, that JFK, it, it did that. Yeah. And well, I, I remember when I saw it in the movie theaters back in 1991 and the groundswell of interest and and people kind of wanting those records to be released and, yeah. you know, and, and just the, the it's, a, it's a, I mean, it's a whole, the story is just fascinating. Not just the story in the movie, but the story of the movie. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, I got a copy of the Warren Commission report at like B. Dalton Bookstore because they were reprinting and, and, and setting that out because of the movie. Oh yeah. So yeah, we are we've been we've been on a giallo, we've been on a giallo binge for weeks now. This is week 5 and uh man, it has been just fascinating and uh you know, this week with our first movie today is has got to be one of the most influential gialli ever made, not just within the genre, but its impact on horror cinema and particularly the emerging format of the slasher film. I mean, cannot be overstated. This is Mario Bava's A Bay of Blood. Twitch, 
of the Death Nerve, the first motion picture to require face-to-face -face warning. Every ticket holder must pass through the theater's final warning station. We must warn you face-to-face. -face. Warning. Are you aware that Twitch of the Death Nerve contains scenes which may be the stimulus that initiates psychological shock? Warning. During scenes of intense shock, do not attempt to leave your seat. If necessary, close your eyes, but remain seated until you have regained your composure. Warning. There are 13 periods of intense shock. Do not subject yourself to more than one strong reaction. Warning. Diabolical, fiendish, savage. You may not walk away from this one. Directed by Mario Bava and written by Bava, Giuseppe Zaccarello, and Filippo Otani, with a story by Dardano Sacchetti and Franco Barberi. Uh, the project started as a collaboration between Bava and Sacchetti after the latter had a falling out with Dario Argento during the production of a film we'll be discussing next week, the Caddo Nine Tales. Bava and Sacchetti came up with a story that revolved around parents who were committing a series of murders in order to secure a better life for their children, but then who were ultimately killed by them. And the story went through multiple uh, variations as well as numerous titles, not only during production, but throughout the film's multiple releases. It started as That Will Teach Them to Be Bad before changing to Chain Reaction, uh, the film was actually promoted as under the title Before the Fact and was first released in Italy under Ecology of Crime and was actually a disappointment on its initial release before being pulled from theaters and it went back to the chain reaction title before then being released as Bay of Blood. And in the United States, the, the movie was distributed by Hallmark releasing under the title Twitch of the Death Nerve and often played on a double bill with Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left. In fact, and this fascinates me, in subsequent American re-releases, it carried the title The Last House on the Left Part 2, which is bananas. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, though, you know, we've made fun of the Italian naming conventions, but clearly if they'd named it after the bug that uh, the guy was uh, chasing in the woods the whole time, this would have been a hit. They oh, yeah, that would have done it. the formula. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. The film stars Claudine Auger, Luigi Pistelli, Claudio Volante, Laura Betty, Leopold Tresti, and Chris Avram. And if some of you are unfamiliar with Giallo, but you have seen American slasher films, and then you watch Bay of Blood, you will find a very comfortable familiarity here because a lot of the DNA of slasher movies is being written right here with Bay of Blood. And uh, one thing I noticed in the credits for this one when it came up is that Bava was listed as the director of photography as well. Oh, that's interesting. I did not notice that. Anyway, I, what I find very interesting is that in watching Bay of Blood, in just looking at it compared to Bava's own work, right? Looking backward to Blood and Black Lace, it feels like this visually could not be more different. Yes, I had the same thought. Yeah, this feels like Blood and Black Lace is his vertigo. And then all of these young youngsters are making Giallo hits and he's like, oh, you want to get down and dirty? I'll get down and dirty. And that this is his psycho because it is not 
I'm not saying that it's a bad looking film, but this is a hard looking film. Like it is not lush. It is not like it, it doesn't feel like a painting come to life, like something like Blood and Black Lace. This feels dirty. And like if you thought, you know, don't torture a duckling <laughs> had some had some dirtiness to it. It's again, visually, this just goes it's such a different direction than I've seen from Baba before. It's a beautiful film, though. I think that his use of color, the shadows and the darkness, there's so much play with silhouette. We're going to get into a lot of the finer details of the approach stylistically as we go here. But I think that this was really it, it, it feels like it's very much of the earth in a way, almost like he's pulling the entire color palette out of the ground and then sort of plugging it into the screen for you as you watch. And then, and the people are an extension of that. The colors that the people are wearing are an extension of that. And it's, 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 it's a fascinating film visually, especially the night stuff. Yep. And uh, a lot of, I mean, we'll, we'll get into a lot more, but. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. As, as you say, it, it, so much of this movie takes place outdoors and on location, which in contrast to blood and black lace, which often feels stage bound, even when it's seen set outside and it's it's really interesting to me because the outdoor setting of this really underscores what I think is one of the principal themes of the film, and that's sort of nature versus man. Like the the setting of Bay of Blood, as one might expect, is in the vicinity of a large bay, and the control of that bay and whether or not it will be developed and the financial gain that would come with that is what drives the plot. And so we open with these shots of the bay, and in one of those classic, like, Italian cinema oddities. We have this moment where the camera adopts the POV of a fly that then drowns in the bay. And it's just, I come back to that shot that I I talk about in Blood and Black Lace, where the camera moves a mannequin out of the way, and it's clearly the camera. Here, it's become an actual fly that gets drowned. And it just, it's fascinating to me. Like, all the first person stuff we've seen in this series, we've never seen a fly. (laughs) Well, it's also a film that that holds in, in some ways it holds man at bay. There, th- there's a lot of looking through windows. There's a lot of characters spending time almost looking imprisoned, whether it's in in trees in nature uh, under a dock. Um, look, there's a lot of through glass, though. And at the beginning, when you're established, I mean, at the very beginning, man is already confined to a wheelchair. The first thing you're seeing is a wheelchair, which is kind of a giallo thing as well. But there's this separation from the sea and freedom right from the get-go. And so it puts the audience kind of in that seat, tethered, anchored, sort of rooted to to something that feels very unsettling, I think, from the outset in the film. And it never really lays into a lot of the common stereotypes about what would become slasher films in a way, because at the time, not a lot of this book hadn't been written yet. And so there's a lot of very surprising moves throughout the whole movie, too. Yes, it is very much. It is a giallo. It is not a, a slasher movie, but you can feel, again, like the DNA is being written. And it's it's interesting. You mentioned at the beginning, we have the woman in the wheelchair, and that's where we open is in this large house. And I almost felt like that opening sequence where you have the, the older woman in a wheelchair in this very large house, it, it felt like to me a throwback to Blood and Black Lace. It was like, oh, here's this, here's this little bubble of Blood and Black Lace with this older woman in this very fine house. It's very formal. There's the furnishings and the draperies feel of of a different era. And then you know you have 
you know, you're kind of following her as she's she's looking out the window, she's watching it rain, and then there's this sudden and brutal attack with a noose around her neck, and the wheelchair rolls away, and she dies by hanging right in front of us. And then something interesting happens. We see the killer, who is an older gentleman, and he takes off his black gloves because it's still a giallo, and he leaves, not making it look as if it were a suicide. And so First off the bat, like the mystery is immediately like kind of headed off at the pass. And then just as quickly, he's killed by an unseen attacker. So the mystery becomes who killed the killer. It's a fascinating way to begin the movie. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point that it starts off in that gothic tradition uh, a little bit in the house with her. But it it punctures that quite severely in the beginning because while uh, what the countess is in the wheelchair and when she is brutally hung um she's brutally hung at a low height right because her legs she does not have use of her legs and there's and you get to see this in the shot you get to see how low to the ground she has been hung and there's just something so cruel about that that yeah it immediately is is tell you know uh, what follows as well but it is such a statement that this is not gothic horror at all uh, um, absolutely and this this is it's so cruel and brutal even though in it's a lot more bloodless than some of the other murders that we've seen in the Gialli up to this point and yet it just it's i think it's just for me it's just the most like i don't know it's just so cruel and mean and then you have as you said the killer uh killed uh, which, you know, uh, not to spoil things that we're not talking about, but uh, a more recent uh, sequel to an American slasher movie uh, oh, yeah. did this exact same thing, uh, pulled that move as well, which was kind of a nice nod. I'm getting a little off track here, but... Um, no, no, no. It's, I, 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 I know the film to which you refer, but yeah, absolutely. So again, the, the, the influence of this continues even today in, in the 21st century. I think that it, that death too continues the nature and man thing because if you think about the peace, the stillness really of the of the water, of the of the trees outside, and the chaos is inside the house. It's in the safe space here. It's right. it's like what Carpenter did with Halloween, but in a way too, when she's hanging there, I love what he did with having the clicking of the wheelchair spokes. It's almost like the lifeline in a, in a hospital as someone's passing away and it slowly stops. And then that sort of signals that she's gone and you, you're, you're spending time with her in her final moments, which is something that often in what would become slasher films, one and done, like kill right. onto the next. And here you're, you're not just sitting in that moment, but also you're in that room. And then, and then you start to examine the room. Then you're coming out to the wider shots after she's already dead to present her the space that she's in. So it's a really fascinating way to, to set things up. It absolutely is. Absolutely. And then from this, we sort of hard cut out of this world of the past into the modern present. And we're in this very modern apartment with realtor slash architect Frank Ventura and his girlfriend, Laura, who are plotting to take possession of the bay. And we learn that the body of the older man, Count Filippo Donati, was never found. And the woman, his wife, Countess Frederica is believed to be a suicide. And we get, I think, what is a visual depiction of a, another key aspect of A Bay of Blood in these two scenes, and that's the generation gap. 
the older characters inhabit an almost entirely different world. And with their deaths, the younger characters in their more modern dwellings try to assume control, but it won't be easy. Also, JMV Scotch makes its appearance. Yeah. <laughs> Frank's, Frank's got JMV Scotch. That's right. We've, we've been noticing this. I did finally, I learned to read Chris and <laughs> I, uh, that's crazy. I know. I know it happened in a couple weeks, but, uh, there, apparently this is a well-known thing. There are whole letterboxed lists of, of where, which Gialli, uh, JNB Scotch appears in. Uh, we've, we've got some more appearances coming up on this, but also apparently this, they were just very, uh, they were very spendy. They're in a lot of movies, apparently, in like seventies nudie movies and things. So oh. it's uh, not oh not my. just this not just the genre. And next, we're introduced to two locals who live around the bay. Simon is a fisherman and a handyman, and Paolo is an etymologist who is studying the insect life around the bay. Paolo is married to Anna, who is a tarot card reader and another, let's just say, overtly suspicious person. Um, we also meet, and, and there's a fascinating scene with the two of them, where where uh, where Simon and Paulo are talking about you know the potential development, and and both of them are against it, and and they sort of represent you know kind of the interests of the people who live there as opposed to the people outside uh, who are coming in to uh, to to potentially just profit from this this natural area. Yeah, it with what I found interesting, and I hadn't seen this in a while. Um, the the influences on Friday, the original Friday the Thirteenth, have been talked about quite a bit. Sure, but what I uh, and I'm sure we're going to talk about them too. But what I uh, what struck me is how, and this isn't the story, but it's the types of characters they have. Right. right. So Paolo, he's, you know, budding etymologist, you know, searching for this bug out there, and his wife is this kind of very um, um, flamboyant fortune teller yeah. and your, your pair. And, and, and you have these like very kind of big characters that, um, you know, are just very striking. And it reminded me not of characters in Friday the 13th. It reminded me of characters from Friday the 13th part three, yeah. where it's like, I feel like, oh yeah, you've got the biker gang. Oh yeah. You've got, you know, uh, the, the guy the, and his know. mother, like the, the, yeah. It felt like these kind of like big, large characters who you can easily grasp onto because there is a cast of characters. And then, you know, and the hippies in this one too, right? Um, and, and, and that it's giving you these, it's giving you these characters um, that are in the orbit of our main characters. And it's giving you stuff that's kind of like fun and, and yeah. a little outlandish at times, but like in a fun way. It all, you know, it all, and then it all feeds into the story. Well, we get we get the, the the this group of local kids who are coming up to one of the abandoned buildings to party and hook up, and they they arrive. I love they arrive in a vehicle that looks like the title character from Hanna Barbera's Speed Buggy cartoon. <laughs> totally, yeah, I love it. And they, you know, like they first bar they the first building they go the first building they go into is an abandoned nightclub slash bar, which was part of a failed effort by Filippo Donati to develop the bay as a tourist area, and. And th this sequence in particular is going to be familiar to anybody who has ever watched a slasher movie because the beats are all there now. But here's the thing. The beats are all there because this film is creating those beats that will then be echoed by later films. It's extraordinary. I think that there's so much to discuss regarding Friday the 13th influence and, 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 and the reflection, the resonance of this film in that series. But the one that I really want to point to is sweaters. Because this this film is wall to wall 
with amazing sweaters. And in fact, we're going to get later on, I won't spoil it now, but there's someone who's basically wearing Mrs. Voorhees sweater during the climactic battle, <laughs> they're rolling around just like Mrs. Voorhees would years later. And I think oh that's just God. great. But I love good sweaters in movies. This one knocks it out of the park. Oh, I agree. As as someone who, who grew up in the Northeast United States, I love sweaters. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I live in California now and I never get to wear them and it makes me crazy. Got to come to Iowa. <laughs> Wearing them already. Need some sweaters. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we, so at first, so the kids arrive, and there's of course an unseen figure watching the kids. And one of the one of the I say kids, they're 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 teenagers, late teenagers. They are not. They're well. like thirty nine years old. They're, <laughs> yeah. they're swarthy. They are grizzled. There's nothing childish. That's one of my notes from this, and it's been a while since I watched it too. But I'm like. Why the hell do they have to go to some tiki hut to to, to get it on? They're adults. <laughs> don't They're, they have homes? I like, don't go to Where are their kids? Maybe. Uh, my goodness. Uh, it's just odd. It's this time <laughs> when they're passing these guys off as teens and it's, Oh so yeah, weird. no, it's they. Are, you you are one hundred percent correct. They are not. They are supposed to be. They're yeah. supposed to be teenagers, but no, they are. They are. They are thirty five and have been in and out of uh, in and out of rehab at least a couple of times. I swear. <laughs> for that whiskey, it's for the J and B. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's it, it's yeah. cheap and it's and you know it, it's available everywhere. That's why. Yeah, I, I, I cheap or do you mean very affordable? For a nice I do mean finish. very affordable. Yes, absolutely. Mod- it's modest. <laughs> uh, and now, stop me if you've heard this before. But one of the quote-unquote kids, Brunhilde, goes off alone and decides to take off her clothes and go swimming in the bay. And I'm like, it, it's. Now, I'll say, thank God she didn't go in the pool, because the pool looks only slightly better than the one from the house on Sorority Row. Holy shit. <laughs> don't get in that pool. It's, it has not been, there's been no chlorine put in there in a long time. We completely skipped over the octopus chomping, you guys. Oh, God, there is the op- yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. It comes back later, too. This yes, isn't something does. that doesn't pay off, but it's the least obvious payoff in the whole film. Like, why- what are you setting up here with this guy gnawing on a raw octopus and <laughs> slapping it down? Oh, that'll come back later. But that yeah. would be Simon the fisherman as he's talking to Paolo. He does. He is chawing on a raw octopus, and he's like, he, he's it's raw live, right? Raw yeah. live. Like he's <laughs> yeah. it's it's still moving. Oh my gosh! It, it's it. I don't know. It's just, it, you're right. And I don't know how I missed that because it's the strangest fucking thing I've seen in a giallo so far is this octopus. And, <laughs> and, and yes, it's, a, it's going to be setting up for something later. Oh my God. It's the, it's, it's, it is in fact a bay of blood. Holy shit. Skinny dipping. This scene, and it'll we'll get the reverse later. Uh, but this scene continues uh, the trend that we've noticed in, in the gialli where, Really, a guy refusing to just go off and have sex with a woman who wants to have sex with him is like the worst decision and results in death. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like when you're with your your model girlfriend, like stop investigating the murder. Stop like following your friends. Just go off and it would have been fine. Because because one of the, the hippie boys who are 58, uh, <laughs> Hildy is into him and she wants him to follow. And for some reason, he is just against it. And what's wrong with this guy? Because come on, this this 
God, just like a Valkyrie or something like that. And and for goodness sake, <laughs> yeah. he, you know, what are you doing, pal? I mean, and it 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 and bad things happen. Bad things happen. But then we we do get the American version of it later, which is the exact reverse. It's a fundamental divide between Italian and American films. In American films, you die when you go fornicate. In Italian films, you die when you don't. Makes sense. That's because the sex in it in these Gialli films is knives. It's knives and, and abdomens. <laughs> it's knives and necks. It's, it's true. hatchets and heads. That's the penetration in these films. It's it's odd. And and even the sex, it's always somehow well, not always, I shouldn't generalize, but here the, the sex is often surrounded by strange things, like balloons hovering over the bed. And it, it's it's like it's an environment that's unnatural when people are being the most natural. Right. It just really is kind of a bizarre chaos everywhere that man exists in this film. And it is the out the outdoors. It is the nature that is the only peaceful real element for them. And then man's prowling around out there doing what he, he she's doing. So I mean, it's I'll, I've quoted it before. I'll quote it again from Charles Bronson from Ten to Midnight. The knife has got to be his penis. Yep. <laughs> Or in this case, uh, a, a spear. So the kids break into this house. The kids, the the the, the mid forties people break into this house. Uh, that's clearly not a bandit. And one of the kids, one of the mid forties folks, <laughs> the middle aged folks, starts messing around with a spear and a mask. Guys, he picks up a spear and a. First of all, what are they doing there? And second of all, don't. I mean. I mean, the problem that these kids have, here's the fundamental problem, is that because they are, you know, Italian late 40s to early 50s folks uh, in the early 70s, none of them have watched an American slasher film or they'd known what was going to happen to them. <laughs> well, that's another, fr- that's another Friday part three thing, though, the mask in the, in the spear, because that's how Shelley ends up. Yep. And that combination is what introduces the Jason mask that everyone knows. So- Start stuff starts to go sideways when Brunhilde encounters the submerged body of Filippo Donati under the dock, and you know she's naturally freaks out because well there's a dead body under the dock. She gets out uh, and she is is she gets out of the water and she runs and she takes a bill hook to the throat like you've uh, like I've never seen it's a sort of short stubby looking sickle and um it's 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 an amazing sequence all of the kills in this movie are amazing um yeah i and while we've had before movies where the tense moments of of the cat and mouse chase have big parts of the movies i i think this is the first one where the kill itself are the best parts of the movie, right? Which I think leads into where you are getting more uh, makeup and effects work like each time, right? Yes. Or in its it, the, the death itself is featured in a big way. Like I, I know you had like what the, the claw uh, three claw slash in uh, Blood and Black Lace. You've even sure. had some that do trend in this direction. This is the first one I can think of that I that I've seen, and I'm not I'm not. Uh, a giallo completist uh so i i do have gaps but this is the one where i'm like each one is a big feature and it's intended yeah. to be aesthetically pleasing yes um, and i know non-horror fans that can sound totally weird <laughs> well it's interesting because the next kill is is one of the other kids bobby the one who didn't he, he wasn't interested in brunhilde why i can't imagine 
Jesus, Bobby, what's wrong with you? Um, one of the kids, he just opens the door and that same bill hook his, goes right into his face and it splits his face open as he opens the door. Now, here's what's funny. Just as this was happening, I'm watching this movie. Now, my wife sometimes watches movies with me, but didn't wasn't necessarily watching this one. But she came downstairs right as this scene was happening. And to her credit, her reaction was, holy shit, that looked amazing. Rewind that. I need to see that again. And I was like, oh, I've made the right choice in a spouse. And, uh, and, and you know, everything's going to be fine. But, like, the bill hook is in the kid's face and his eyes are still blinking. And it's amazing. Yeah, both. Um, they're presented beautifully. And the frantic pace of the editing leading up to her death as she's making her way up that kind of hill oh, yeah. toward, the, toward the house, the editing starts getting really jagged and frantic. And it's cutting between POVs and really kind of obtuse uh kind of foreign shots like wait what was that was that a blade what was it's it's disorienting until it gets there and in this film that so far has been pretty much drenched in grays and browns and darkness all of a sudden you see the sunset there's that great wide the one of the most beautiful shots in the film is this gorgeous forest sunset with it in the background i mean like so only in death is beauty born and that's kind of a repeated theme throughout this whole thing. Absolutely. Uh, I want to mention that the makeup effects, um, honestly, which are just incredible, are courtesy of Carlo Rambaldi, the special effects genius who we mentioned last week when we were talking about a lizard in a woman's skin and who worked on films such as the 1976 King Kong, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Alien, and who created E.T. And he is responsible for, for these incredible makeup uh, effects that we have, uh, which just, I mean... They're, as you said, they're beautiful in their execution. It's it's fantastic. But there's still two kids left, guys, and they are off in one of the bedrooms, and they are uh, they are getting it on. They are doing it Italian style. Maybe they will survive. I don't know what that means. I have no idea what that means. Uh, they are. <laughs> they are. <laughs> sounded good. It sounded good. <laughs> and they are. Uh, they are stabbed two for one. With the spear that the guy was fucking around with, and if this seems very familiar, again, we this is this was beautifully echoed in one of the Friday the Thirteenth, either two or three. My brain uh, cannot remember, and I should have looked it up. But it is it's it's an ex- it's just it's just fantastic. This whole sequence is the DNA of the slasher film, just being born. It is incredible. It's part one and part two. Part no part part one and part three. Part three has the hammock with the two of them, where it's That's the spear. It. Part one is the Kevin Bacon scene from Under with the Bed. The it's kind of the reverse. That yeah. So yeah, but total echoes. And also, since we're making so much note of homage, whether intentional or not, the bodies under the dock very much. I mean that that to me is Bloodhook. Have you guys seen Bloodhook? I have not no. seen Bloodhook. Oh man, it's this movie that was shot up in the in I was either Wisconsin, yeah, it was Wisconsin outside Madison like northern Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And it's uh they the killer keeps the people under the dock with a rope through their chin like a fish like you'd keep the fish like on the side of your boat in the water and then at the end you see him pulling them out and there's this just endless string of dead people on this rope. And this is the only other time I've ever really seen that done, the sort of preservation of the dead bodies 
in this film, I can't help but think I, I've never found direct reference, but I can't help but think that the guys who made that Jim Mallon actually made it behind Mystery Science Theater. Uh, but I can't help but think that they would have seen this and and thought of that when they came up with it. But I what just are, assume the Mystery Science Theater three thousand guys have seen everything because just, <laughs> right. just by by nature of that show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's uh, sweater weather up there. I presume that's right. <laughs> uh, but it's funny because we're we're almost like at the halfway point of this film when we're introduced to Renette Donati and her husband Albert, and we get a glimpse of them earlier when they're looking through binoculars. But we don't really learn uh, who they are until this point, and who they are is a pair of amoral dummies who make one bad decision after another. And just it's a cascade of bad decisions, starting with leaving their kids in like the the camper that they've rented to to come down and and sort of press her claim on the bay. Renee Donati is is the daughter of Filippo Donati by a previous marriage, and she and Albert are trying to claim ownership of the bay. Now, do they do this by getting the authorities involved or hiring an attorney, pressing their claims in court? No, no. They just they rent a trailer and they drive down to the middle of nowhere to the, the, this, this lake in the middle of nowhere where their kid with their kids who they leave alone for long stretches in the middle of the night. I mean, even even Renee says, "Oh, we should have left them with their aunt," and I'm just like, "No shit, lady, you should have left them with their aunt." Uh, children should stay with their parents, says Albert. I'm like, in the, in the macro, yeah. In the macro. But you know what? It's okay for the leave them in a night or two when you're skulking around the bay. You know, Jesus, you send them to school for God's sake. So, I mean, these people are, they're, they're amoral dummies. That's just, that's, that's, that's what it is. But again, uh, continuing as you'd noted, um, this is now the next generation. And I don't think we've seen a single generation uh, really treating the others very well. No, <laughs> no. It is again that that kind of uh, you know, shall we say, at least a somewhat bleak view of humanity, which which runs throughout, right? Uh, yes, we are. Uh, we all have um, base impulses that are hard to escape, and even those of us that aren't murderous aren't necessarily uh, doing so hot either. Uh, you know, from trespassing hippie kids. To um, nosy nosy fortune tellers, to <laughs> the trespassing mid forty year olds are like the most innocent people in the whole movie, and they're still you know it's still trespassing. Like it, it's and there's plenty of animal awfulness in this. Oh yeah, like all this is crushing of bugs and drowning them, and it just is kind of scene after scene of that. And I'm sure as you guys have been going through this this giallo thing. Italians love insects. Yeah. Yes. The, yes. the, the films, Argento is just absolutely obsessed with larvae and all this. I love Phenomena. That's one of my all-time favorite films. It is my second favorite Argento film. And that's just, I mean, that's crawling from frame one to the end with something or other. But here they're, they're they, I mean, they're actively crushing and killing and drowning. And it's so weird. It's so strange. Yeah, it's it's yeah, and we and, and Renette and and Albert, uh, they end up at the house of Paolo and Anna, and Paolo, you know, like you know, he's you have guests. Put away your bugs for a little while, pal. Like it's you know, and we learn. But you don't know, don't put away that Fernet Branca that you were drinking straight up because <laughs> that is you know talk about some Italian shit right there. Uh. Yeah, this this extended scene of like tea and exposition here where we learn that Filippo Donati was trying to develop the bay for financial gain. 
nightclubs and gas stations and other devilries. It's basically, he's basically was trying to do what, what judge doom was trying to do to Toontown. Like that's the basic plot, you know? And it's great. I do love because they, they use this. I mean, I don't know how strongly it's pushed, but you get a little red herring with Paolo. Where oh, yeah. is he, is he so protective of the nature that he would kill to stop the development? Um, his wife is unhinged enough that you'd think she, she's involved too. Um, you know what? Simon, the fisherman totally wow. sus as yeah. the kids would say, <laughs> uh, you know, so you, you, so this is very giallo in that way, right? Yes. Where you do, you are being presented with lots of different possible motives, uh, some that seem very personal, some that seem a little unhinged, and some that seem a more, you know, money power centered. It's a giallo. There's all sorts of reasons for which to kill. Uh, and we learn one of those reasons is that Renete's claim on the bay is in jeopardy from, of all people, Simon, who is actually Federica Donati's illegitimate son, whom she kept hidden until he was 16 and then had him living in a cabin by the bay as, quote, a constant reminder of her weak flesh. Uh, and it's possible that Frederica's will leaves everything to Simon if only, if only the will could be found. So Renette and Albert go off to see Simon and, and Renee, she starts trying to get her husband, like she's already thinking murder. She's not thinking, oh, should we press this claim in a court of law? She's like, oh, maybe we have to kill this Simon guy. And she's not quite there yet, but uh, it's going there. And we learn that Simon and Frank Ventura are in cahoots together. And and Simon, you know, he denies knowing, uh, you know, Filippo, anything about Filippo, just before Renee discovers her father's body in Simon's boat underneath an octopus. There it is. The <laughs> revenge. <laughs> I love it. I always root for the animals. I'm watching Grizzly cheering the whole time for the Grizzly. Orca, go get him. This is another case of that. I'm like, I hope that thing comes back. There's no way, though. Oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah, the, 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 right there in the boat. There's nothing more like, you know, <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, I, I don't know anything about your father. Oh, yeah, I found his, his, his uh, oh, wait, I found his body in the bay. Yeah, that's the ticket. Renette and Albert, they, they retreat to Frank Ventura's house where she discovers four dead bodies in the bathtub and Frank with an axe. It's the kids. Or the people in their late 40s to early 50s um, <laughs> who have just gotten accepted to uh, AARP. Uh, <laughs> I love how dead. cumbersome that's become. That's that's my greatest <laughs> joy so far in this whole episode. This is very Sleepaway Camp 2, by the way. Sleepaway Camp 2, at the very end, Angela, or, uh, Angela sets up all the bodies in the cabin and it's staged very similarly with the slashed faces, very obvious and everything sort of laying the grew out for everyone to see. And that's actually when, when you bring that up, because this is not it is not how you would store the bodies in that bathtub. If you no. were just dumping them as the killer to get rid of them, they are very dramatically placed, uh, which goes because I, I think for me, the visual style of this thing really picks up and into this final half hour yeah. of the movie. It. That he is really, um, you know, Baba's really pulling out all the stops with this, where all of us, like, you're taking the time to frame dead bodies, right? Mm, yeah. Like, perfectly and to pose them within frame and do the sorts of things where I think earlier it was a little, um, not rougher in the sense of not thought out, but just it was maybe a little more rugged, you know, um, and that as you're coming in closer, uh, you know, to the climax, that it's just getting so much more detailed. No, it's, a, it's a playfulness. 
that's present when you're staging the bodies like this. And so it's a, who could this be? Why would they even take the time? I think it's a nice way to set things off and make people wonder. The, Halloween does this. Michael Myers stages bodies, and but you know it's him and yeah. the whole time. And so you're thinking logistically with him. Well, why, how, why would he, whatever. But here it's, it, it really does almost seem like it's like it's kids just like laying traps for a parent. And I'm a parent. I know what it's like to walk through the house when they're playing pranks. You'll encounter one then you go, okay, there's going to be many more. And you get to the <laughs> next one. It's a little bigger, a little grosser. And by the time you get upstairs, the, I don't know. And, and they have some grand staged thing like, that. but, uh, but here, yeah, I, I think it makes sense as an off-putting element to stage them like that. It's a weird thing. But when you find out about things eventually in the film, you go, whoa, you know, that, that just might've been them having fun. It, it makes sense in the, in the context of, of how things play out. And, and so there's Frank with an ax and here's these dead, and, and, and Renette, she, she, she freaks out as as one might, and and there's a scene where she's trying to keep Frank out of the bathroom. It's like you know, again, well before uh, you know, uh, before The Shining, uh, you know, he's trying to get in, she's trying to keep her out, and she stabs Frank in the stomach with some scissors and is able to to get the hell out of there. And um, I think this is actually the place to put in our spoiler line. Uh, it's a little earlier than usual, perhaps, but but if you don't want to know. Who is behind the murders in in a Bay of Blood? You can just skip to the the next chapter, and we'll be talking about Death Walks on High Heels. But uh, we want to give you that chance if uh, if you're intrigued enough that you you want to seek it out. Um, so here we go. We're we're past the spoiler line. So both Paolo and Albert come back to the house in rapid succession, and both see Frank Ventura's body. Uh, and and Renette, rather than waiting for the cops. Or very justifiably claiming self-defense because here's a guy coming after her with an axe and in, in the bathroom are a bunch of dead bodies. I think you could make a plausible argument for I was frightened for my life. No, instead she sends off her husband to go kill Paolo, which he does. Now, I love my wife and I do things that she asks, but if she just asked me to kill this dude, I probably would think twice, but you know, uh, you know, he's off and he kills her. And then meanwhile, uh, you know, Paolo's wife, Anna, finds Frank's body just before her head is cleanly cut off with an axe by Renette. All these people are murderous. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I think and it's the thing that sort of separates this movie from the slasher movies to come or even some of the other giallos is there's no one culprit. Everybody's, uh, you know, sort of got blood on their hands. Like almost everybody in this movie over the court kills somebody else. It's madness. I think that that goes to the worldview of humanity yes. and what's being explored in these movies. Um you know, and I and I realize these a lot of these were made fast, um, and they're you know they're doing the artistic things that they are. But you know, we we may or may not be reading things in that were may or may not have been consciously put in, right? But at the same time, it's the zeitgeist, and it's all bubbling up. And you know, in, in the American slasher films, you really do, which I think is super American. You do get black and white, right? 
villain yes. bad guy. Here are, and sometimes you get here are victims who deserve it, but these are definitely victims who don't deserve it, and we want them to survive. And they are pure, and sometimes, and then, and they maybe have to get their hands a little dirty to survive, right? Right. These movies don't have that at all. No. <laughs> these movies are everyone is awful. Occasionally, you get someone who is less awful. But I'm probably not even rooting for them either. Uh, you know, it's. Um, but maybe I would want them at my party. We've discussed this uh, in the past. They could be extremely charming, right? Um, but that's a whole other bag. Um, but yeah, it's just a very bleak. And you talked about all of the the animal, you know, cruelty and with insects, and yeah. I think that plays into it. Lit- literally, everyone in some fashion in this movie has a murderous heart, except Broomhilde. Uh, yes, Broomhilde was the one why- pure. Too pure for this world. Uh, you know, that's that's it. Um, yeah, we have Laura, the, the girlfriend from the opening seat. She comes down and arrives and she finds her, her Frank Ventura uh, alive, but, but injured. And he sends her to Simon for help. That turns out to be a bad idea. That's... Uh, that's some bad idea jeans that guy was wearing uh, when he sent us. Simon uh, is, uh, you know, well, he he's actually killed more people than anybody else. Uh, the third act of this movie, we start to get this series of flashbacks to events that happened before the first murder. And we see that Frank Ventura and Laura met with Frederica Donati, who refused to do business with them. And then they find Frederica's diary with a date and, you know, an entry dated the previous February, which sounds by the, the on the face of it pretty despondent. And they scheme with her husband who killed his wife and made it look like a suicide, who then was in turn killed by Simon, who sunk the body in the bay. And Simon strangles Laura to death. And we see through another flashback that he was the murderer of the four teens and he went to Frank Ventura for help and effectively signed over the bay to Frank before getting the hell out of Dodge. It's, it's, Everybody is, if they haven't actually killed somebody, they have encouraged somebody to kill somebody. Everybody's terrible and um, they all deserve to to get sunk in the bay. I mean, that's just all it comes down to. That's the worldview that Bava has in this movie. Simon has Mama Voorhees' sweater. He does indeed. Yes. Simon has, yes. In the in the final struggle, Simon is wearing a, just a great sweater but that, that, you know, would... <laughs> that would that um, Pamela Voorhees would wear something very very similar, and um, you know he he has a fight with Albert. Albert like spears him through the gut, leaving him pinned up against the wall. Um, which you know that's you know uh, Michael Myers would do something very similar a couple of years down the line in Halloween, although not with a spear. But the spear comes back again, uh, and then. And then Albert and Renette go and search for the will with no regard whatsoever for leaving fingerprints over the site of the multiple murder before they have one final struggle with Frank Ventura and Albert is able to come out on top, although they they leave you in the dark for a few moments. The next morning, they burn the will and it looks like everything is just going to be great for Albert and Renette. Until then, they are suddenly and randomly blown away by their own kids with a shotgun. Holy shit! (laughs) I mean, this ending, I mean, I've seen this film, I have seen this film before, but I had kind of like, 
I, I was still not prepared. It was like, oh shit, this really kind of comes out of nowhere. And the kids, they thought it was a toy and their parents are laying on the ground and they just think they're playing dead. And the credits roll with this insanely upbeat music. Yeah, there's a weird moment of contemplation. There, there isn't a lot of that offered to these characters in this film uh, outside of what Brunhilde? Brun, yeah. Whatever. Oh, poor Brunhilde. Yeah. She, you know, she has some time to herself. But at, so after Simon has done some killing at the end, there's this a sequence where he's walking through the abandoned house that they've all been hanging out in. Yes. And he's just kind of like having time. He's having, he's smoking and he's standing there with the, he's got just drenched in blood and everything. And it's an unusual moment in a movie that tends to move relatively quickly, generally outside of that. But you're almost, it's almost like a sympathetic moment for him because there's some light music underneath it. And you're thinking, my God, this is what, how do you, it's just such an unusual way to paint a killer in a film right. is to do that. And you, and you give him this really private moment. And then the most explosive moment literally in the film happens in the last like 15 seconds Yeah, where you hear the words, mommy, daddy, and then bang, bang. And next, you know, shot of the bodies, the kids making their comment. And then it's just over. I mean, like if anybody got up to get their car out of the lot early, they would have missed that. If anybody would have sneezed, they would have missed it. It's just amazing that they hard end right after these kids blow them away. It's wild. Like almost everyone here is guilty of something. It's like, I, I, I ran the numbers. I don't usually do this, but I ran the numbers. Simon kills six people. Albert kills three at two directly at the behest of his wife, who herself kills one. Filippo kills one, which Frank and Laura certainly had a hand in planning. And then the kids kill two, although they, they didn't seem to understand their action. And it's just, it is uh, the fundamental difference in that, that Friday the 13th and other American slashers have is they concentrate that murderous in a single culprit. Yeah. And, and you look at this um, as a step along the way we've, we've talked where, you know, in a lot of Jolly, you have at least some sort of investigation. Uh, sometimes that, investigators police sometimes it's a civilian sometimes you're passing off who is doing the investigation as someone dies that sort of thing uh this movie really it it really doesn't have it you get a there's some lip service right with with uh i think with frank and uh and then it or not with frank with uh with the couple who come to kill everyone, uh, where they're trying to figure out who killed the, you know, the countess the count, and all yeah. that. And, but only out of self-interest. Supposedly. Yeah. It, it, and it's, you really don't have investigative beats, right? They, it, it really is lip service. They will have some dialogue happen, but they're not exactly going around uh, picking up clues or whatever. No. And it's, it's interesting to me then when you look at the early slashers where, you know, you get that split with the early slashes as well in America, where some have the mystery of who the killer is right. and some don't. Right. And eventually the don't wins out, yeah. <laughs> you know, the longer you go. The other thing I'll say that like say Friday the 13th and other, other American slashers add is mythology. You know, at what happened 20 years earlier to close the camp? Uh, and, and and legitimate grievance. Pamela Voorhees has a right to be angry. Does she handle it properly? No. Does she direct that anger at the appropriate parties? Also no. But she's got a good reason for her fury. Whereas here, we just have people killing out of greed. It's, it's like if 
A Bay of Blood is like Friday the 13th if everyone was an amoral, avarice-driven killer and both Pamela Voorhees and Steve Christie were killing people off so one or the other of them could build a Howard Johnson's at Crystal Lake. Hojo's. <laughs> It'd be a beautiful spot for one, Chris. Honestly, it yeah. would be it would be great. And you know, they're all dead, so you might as well you might as well develop the land for for something. You know, it's uh, you know, someone should make a buck out of it or a leer of. I think it, in a lot of the slashers too, the you, it's interesting the point about the investigation element because that's kind of the Achilles heel of a lot of these films where it kind of you get into a pace with the action and then you're drugged back into the police station again. And that, and in uh, Godzilla films, it's always or you know, a lot of the of and films of that ilk. It's a lot of military shots. It's the military coming and going and having discussions about things. Scientists talking about things and holding beakers and whatnot. Where and I think that's one of the things that makes the what became the slasher genre so endearing is that in the like Friday the Thirteenth, the first one, there is the cop that comes up what you've been what you're smoking there boy you know the kind of thing but he goes away the, you're spending the running time of the film with young people and that's something that not a lot of cinema does outside of kids films and even in kids films there's always the sort of bowling lane bumpers of some sort of structure to what the parents are leading them into or away from whereas sure. in the slasher genre it really is kids being kids and even though everyone here is like 90 years old and we have, but all these people are definitely not young people at the same time, we're, we're spending the bulk of the running time with them. We're not getting bogged down with a bunch of other stuff that distracts from what we're ultimately showing up for, which are probably, I guess, for most people, the more tantalizing aspects of what these films became and are here. So that's an interesting thing to point out. Cause I think a lot of, I'm sure you're finding in Giallo films, it's always it always goes back to that police station. There's always yeah. going back to people in a car looking around. You know, the number of ways that you can look at a fingerprint uh, is amazing. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> what about some other things in this? Like if you look at all of the decorations in the house, all the paintings are awful. They look almost like the what you put on the side of a barn to scare owls away with. <laughs> Big eyes and triangular stuff. And there's a real overabundance of sculptures everywhere. There's a lot of clocks oh, yeah. in this film. Clocks are very prominent throughout the whole thing. And I think that sort of ties back to that wheelchair thing at the beginning with the ticking down of life. And yeah. you're reminded throughout the film here and there that the clock is always kind of the pendulum's always swinging. The, the clock is always ticking and as people are dying off, it's just like the rhythm of, of humanity's fallibility. It's, 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 it's the rhythm of loss and it's sprinkled throughout the whole thing up to the end when you do realize that everyone's marching to that same rhythm because they don't, that there isn't a compassionate element in much of anybody in this thing. But yeah, do you, don't you find that in these films you guys are watching? Clocks are always there. Clocks are always there. As you say, there's terrible art. I mean, even going back to Bird with the Crystal Plumage in that art yep. gallery <laughs> with the strangest, gigantic yeah. sculpture. Like, and, and you know, I mean, the, I mean, for goodness sake, Sam gets trapped under this sculpture that that is just a death trap waiting to oh, fall. Yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, oh, it's titled Sword of Damocles. Well, that makes sense. Like that's. <laughs> 
that fits perfectly. Uh, and you you were talking about uh, you know a lot of the shots through glass or other things, so obscuring what people are seeing has been coming up a lot. Um, you know, and, and the not peeping always element. in a killer POV, but yeah. also peeping. Lots there, of and peepers. There's like, there's like someone following someone, and then there's someone following the someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I my mean, favorite. But thing. what's interesting though is that it isn't just POV stuff, and this film no. is certainly playing the same way where the audience is is the the voyeur throughout a lot of this there are stage scenes of course throughout the whole thing but you're constantly cutting and it's not even necessarily played as pov at all it just happens to be a shot behind a wall of leaves and branches as somebody walks and eventually emerges sort of from that and then goes to their destination so it's not trying to do what a lot of people claim Carpenter tried to do with Halloween, put you in the shoes of the killer. It's not necessarily that. The whole film is that. It's like yeah. it, it, it's like daring the audience to become one of these awful people. It's saying, you know this is in you. You recognize this view. You've been in those bushes, you creeps. <laughs> Welcome home, weirdos. Because you're right. Like Carpenter's doing those POV shots in a way, assuming that we all think that we're not that, right? Yes. Right. And the movie, the movie also doesn't assume that we're that. So it's it's very much like a shock. Yeah, and you're right. In Bay of Blood, Bob is like, I don't need to kill her POV because you have it. Right. <laughs> I don't have to give it the to kill, you. The killer POV was us all along. <laughs> um, That's the moral. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've said that the, the thing about Giallo's is the casts are usually so beautiful, you can understand why these people would be peepers, for goodness sake. It's like... Holy shit. And and in the, our second film today is also a film with I mean there's peepers and there's there's there uh, you know there's looking through windows there's and Italian style. There's Italian. There's just <laughs> yes. Doing it Maybe we'll figure style. that one out. This next and- one we're going to get there. <laughs> to what Italian? Oh, this next one a little get seasoning. Fact- <laughs> some some er- herbs in the lube. <laughs> <laughs> Extra garlic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why you kids have got to make the fun? You know, it's uh, <laughs> and it also deals with outsiders coming to a remote area only to find a succession of murders. And also from 1971, this is Death Walks on High Heels. He thinks I have those diamonds. He says he'll kill me if I don't tell him where they are. Englishman killed her, if you want to know. I regret to say that your accusation is erroneous. You see, Dr. Matthews couldn't have done it, as he was shot last night. It might have been anyone. Even you. You're after her killer. <laughs> How amazing you should care when the stupid bitch nearly murdered the man who was keeping her. Death Walks on High Heels was the second of three Giallo films directed by Luciano Ercoli, following the forbidden photos of a lady above suspicion, that's a fantastic title, and preceding Death Walks at Midnight in 1972. The film was written by Manuel Velasco and Ernesto Gastaldi, the latter of whom also wrote The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward and The Case of the Scorpion's Tale, and whose name will appear in a few more times in this series before we're done. It stars Frank Wolf, Susan Scott, Simon Andrew, and Carlo Gentelli. And we open up on a train, and we pan up to see this guy on a train has a gun and an eye patch. And I said to myself, okay, 
this is the kind of movie we're in. The dude's got a gun and an eye patch. And uh, this is also the kind of movie where the guy with the gun and eye patch puts the gun under his pillow, but the gun doesn't do much good for him there because he opens the compartment door on the train and gets stabbed in the neck. And the attacker searches the train compartments before we get an amazing freeze frame and title card where it's the killer with these big blue eyes and he's looking straight at the camera and it's incredible. I will put it up on the social medias because it's one of the greatest title cards I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, and and Blue Eyes is really, really underselling it there, Chris. They're very blue. They're deep blue. I mean, these look like glowy, monstrous blue eyes somehow. <laughs> and, and 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 I really think that the skin has been treated around those eyes because Something, eventually, yeah. eventually when it's revealed who these eyes belong to, um, I just think when you look at the like their face next to what their face is supposed to look like around these eyes that these are not the same at all it is um it, it it's almost like old like like lon cheney like stuff yeah it's like it's like that kind of stylized i, I love it but yeah. oh no it's they are bulging in a way that most human eyes don't but and the guy's got a ski mask so it's like it's even more prominent uh, and then we cut to Nicole and and Michelle, who are played by Susan Scott and Simon Andrew. They're riding in a cab through Paris, and it's bright and sunny. And we get some upbeat, jaunty music. And holy shit, is Simon Andrew an absolute dead ringer for actor Chris Messina? Uh, and as we've commented on previous episodes of the series, they're just two very attractive people. Holy, they are uh, they are fantastic to look at. We find out that they're being interviewed by a police inspector, and apparently uh, Nicole's father was the man who was killed on the train, and he was a master safecracker. And the police are on the hunt for some missing diamonds and believe he was involved in the theft. But Nicole says she has no idea where those diamonds are and that she believed her father had gone straight. And in this police interview, Michelle has this blue velvet suit. I've never coveted a piece of clothing quite like the blue velvet suit it's amazing um again the 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 style and fashion are back in force in this movie in a way that that they kind of were absent from bay of blood because of its more earthy feel here it's it's paris and it's high fashion to start with Uh, and and and, you know from those uh you know for real from those suits to the burlesque stuff that we're gonna see her apartment in paris that has like the flashing neon lights all of this yep i i i did look up and i found nothing okay i have to think that this movie was one of the gialli that was a big influence on last night in soho because there's so many elements of this the story is vastly different right and they go different places but there's there's a lot of echoes where I, I just saw some of the imagery and things. I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see where this got transmuted into that. Absolutely. Uh, Nicole, by the way, is a stripper. And before going on for a stage for her next show, she gets a phone call from someone using an electronic boi- voice box to disguise their voice. But she kind of just dismisses it and goes on stage. So yeah, it's evil. 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 It's oh, the- my God. It's evil. Yes. Oh, it is. It's better than the duck voice in New York Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Have you guys seen that? 
Yes. Yeah, oh that God. movie though. That movie. Talk about nasty. Holy shit. Oh smokes. yeah. Yeah. We'll yes, we'll that, do a oh, wow. that's a bonus episode. It kind of comes after the period that we're focusing on, but we'll we'll definitely come back and do a yeah. bonus episode. Yes, I will New refill the eyewash station before that one. Uh, <laughs> Silver toes. Yeah, that movie's got it all. <laughs> yeah. So she's going on stage for this performance. Oh, guys. Oh, my God. Um, so at first, Nicole's wearing a wig that I just at first, because I am I am an innocent who doesn't think the worst of things. And then as I started to watch the performance, I, I just realized she is supposed to be. Oh, my God. Is she supposed to be pretending she's black? Is this a black play? Is this a black face stripper performance oh my god it is i honestly there are a few things in this series we've watched burn i watched a bill hook into a guy's face and nothing quite stopped me in my tracks as much as this incredibly problematic striptease performance oh my god only to be made worse when later on when um they're sexily removing it with the oh yeah when michelle shows up after the show and is is yeah it's like so god it's gross Uh, it's the it's i mean i've seen a lot of shit guys but this (laughs) this this one i i just i didn't uh boy boy i don't know is is what all i could say and we are not coming to Gialli for, you know, modern progressive values. No, <laughs> and no. It's but still shocking by Gialli yeah, standards. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And it's just, you know, it's, uh, it is problematic. And also, by the way, during this performance, Nicole is being watched and in fact filmed by a man in the audience. And I just, I don't think strip clubs allow you to take pictures, let alone film footage, but I guess it was a different time. Holy shit, was it a different time? <laughs> yeah. Well, Super 8 film, so it does look very cool when it's being shot. And yes. then um, we get to see it later. Yes. Um, and and after the show, like I said, she 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 meets Michelle and, uh, and, and she tells him not to drink too much, which means he almost certainly will. Like that is, uh, that is absolutely going to happen. Uh, and her second show, thankfully, just has a kind of gold theme to it. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and I gotta say, no matter what, like the, the sets and costumes for these strip teases are really elaborate. Like, and I, I don't know if it's the time. I just figured it might be the difference between strip clubs in Paris and those in Secaucus, New Jersey. Very weird. <laughs> Uh, the same man is waiting in, in, in for her in her dressing room after the second show, which frankly she is surprisingly cool with a dude being in there. Like she 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 rolls with that, uh, and and the man is named Robert Matthews, and he obviously is very into her and wants to take her out. Uh, and she politely tells him that she keeps her work life and her and her private life separate. Uh, but he mentions the hotel he's staying at because she'll need to know that later. Um, and and just this whole sequence. We've talked about sleaze in 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 Gialli up until now, and Bay of Blood didn't have a lot of that. It was, but holy shit, it's back with a vengeance on in Death Walks on High Heels. I mean, just the title, just the title, Death Walks on High Heels. It's not Death Walks on Sensible Flats. And it, what, what's interesting to me is that the sleaze is so featured. You know, and obviously they're doing this for for uh, economic reasons at the time. But the way that it functions in the movie is interesting because you have that initial kill on the train 
Right. And then what you wind up with is just learning all about her kind of sordid life, right? And and you are also setting up uh, some red herrings uh, and just by, by virtue of the world that she's inhabiting, it, it just feels very unsafe. Um, we, we know the connection to the murder. We know that there are diamonds involved, but we also know that there's, she's like in a world that, uh, at least some of the characters are being presented is also kind of perverted. And so in that classic fashion, you're setting up, will killing happen because someone's insane or will it happen because they want diamonds? Um, and, and, you know, sometimes the answer as we've found is why not both? Why not both? Uh, (laughs) Yes, yes. <laughs> but but remains to be seen at this point in this movie. Yeah, and 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 to that end, I mean, like she she gets another call from the disguised voice, uh, this time specifically asking about the diamonds and threatening her. And she goes home, and she comes home as you talk about just this world of sort of danger. Michelle is drunk, and he throws a switchblade at her head. You know, it's just like this fucking guy. I swear to God. And he leaves, and not long after, Nicole is attacked in her apartment by a man wearing the black ski mask and gloves. And I gotta say, to Nicole's credit, she goes right for the switchblade that Michelle left on the bed. Like, she doesn't succeed, but she goes right for, like, a defensive thing. And um, But that's not enough, because the attacker cuts open her dress and wraps it around her head in a move I've never seen in anything, in any movie before. My goodness. And that's weird, because why it completely incapacitates her. It, that, yeah. Like, that just, j- just the simple fact that it's over her head, and she just sort of lays there. And it's strange, and it's it's an interesting thing about the eroticism in these, when there is, when there are sexual elements present, they're often somewhat puzzling mm-hmm. in some way like that. Have you found that to be pretty consistent through, through oh, the other pictures oh, yes. you've been watching? It's, it's not a, what you, one would call a conventional sexuality. No, um, no, 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 no. It's, it's, uh... Uh, and, and I would say even, and I mean that very, very broadly because even um, like if this isn't conventional, like BDSM stuff either. Right. I mean, that is like, you know, there are, you know, several different conventions. This stuff's just sure. crazy. Yeah. yeah, but but here, you know, I mean, and, and I'll admit that this was the first time that I occurred to me that the attacker was wearing contact lenses, like the bit on the train, because, you know, it's like I didn't I was like, oh, it's just he's got really blue eyes. But then I'm like, oh, I think these are contact lenses. Like, it's so unnatural. It looks like he's taking a bath in the spice from Doom. <laughs> what about the Crisco rubdown? Oh, uh, yes. there is that. Yes, that's uh Yeah. Uh, that, that, I just want to see what you have to say about it, Chris. Is, I, it, I, is, is it Italian style? I don't know. Is, maybe uh, Crisco well, is the Italian. No, element. it would be olive oil if it was Italian style. All right, uh, all right. The Crisco rubdown is more, um, honestly, it feels more, that's a, that feels like classic American, baby. You know, that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's straight off of the shelf of your, your, your regular Safeway. It's not, uh, it's not extra virgin. Here are my notes on this part of the film. I have... <laughs> Crisco rubdown. <laughs> Divine exclamation point. The throat box thing. Better than New York Ripper, I guess. I have Michael is a weird drunk. Yeah. It's a have very Mi- weird drunk. Michael's birdcage filled with crepe paper. Lots of window peeping. And then I have in all caps the straight razor. <laughs> the straight razor uh has gotta be his penis. I mean, that's <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's uh it's it's 
it's very suggestively waved around when when the attacker has Nicole uh, on the bed, and uh, you know it's uh, it's. Did, it's ha, have you guys looked into anything? I mean, I forgive me because I'm a passive Jalo fan. I mean, I, I have some of them over time, but have you ever encountered any explanation for the straight razor being the weapon of choice in so many of these? I don't know. I I, I don't know why it strikes me as. I think it was a common thing that people would carry in lieu, like criminals would carry in lieu of a knife at one time, in particular yeah. in Italy. It's like, oh, I can have a straight razor in my boot. Like you're, you're like you're, you're like your bad, bad Leroy Brown. There's an elegance to it, though. Uh, it's it it is not the most obvious murder weapon because it's first right. of all, it's only one sided. It right. can fold in half back on you if you don't use it right. You have to open it. So there's there's like steps in the process to to even use the thing. And so I've always been very curious if that was ever explored somewhere. Uh, I think that is Italian style right there. There we go. (laughs) Um, Michelle comes back and Nicole tells him what happened. And of course, uh, you know, like they're right back on the bed where the attack occurred and they're bathed in this red light. And, uh, and of course he doesn't believe her or, uh, you know, is he saying that because he was the attacker? Because Nicole becomes convinced of that when she finds a pair of blue contact lenses in the medicine cabinet. Upon finding those contact lenses, Nicole sensibly is out of there like a shot, which is probably a good idea, even if Michelle is not the killer, because he likes to throw knives at her while he's drunk for fun. What she does next might be a little ill-advised. She seeks out Robert Matthews, who has conveniently told everyone in Paris what hotel he's staying at. She says, if you want me, get me the hell out of here. And Robert is like, yep, we are going to go. And she, and off like a shot, they are to England. It turns out he's a doctor from England, although he's the most Italian Englishman you're ever going to see. Like it just, it, it just doesn't, he's not, he doesn't feel English to me. But, you know, he he's married, but that won't stop him from taking Nicole on a shopping spree slash dress-up montage uh, at this point in the film. And and I got to say, this is a movie with a lot of random wigs. I don't know if that's important to the plot, but it's, it's there. There's a lot of random wiggery in this film. Yeah, I'm, I guess... <laughs> There's a lot going on. But with the with the move to, to London, the thing that I enjoy is that we've spent all this time thus far in very urban Paris. And at first you think you're going to London, but you are not really going to go to London. You're going to go to that other favored location, which is a cabin in the country, right? A well, cabin, cabin by the London. seaside because... Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's... Robert does what any reasonable man would do. You know, he he finds a house in a small seaside village and sets Nicole up there as his quote unquote wife. I, I do have to go back to a couple of things. Before we get to the seaside village, there's a scene where they're, they they make love for the first time. And I I mean, honestly, is there a more romantic piece of dialogue than, quote, the first time I saw you at the crazy horse, I said to myself, there's just something else in this world. Uh, I mean, my goodness, that is, that is, if that doesn't sweep a girl off her feet is the mention of the crazy horse that, that would do it. And when she asks him to help her take her boots off before they have sex, he says, 
leave them on. And I just punched the air because I knew that was going to happen. I saw it coming. I was like, he wants the boots on. And sure enough, I I had my finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist with that. You're all about the fashion here. I think that this Giallo series is turning you into a fashionista. It's 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 an entirely new side of me that that is 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 a fascinating discovery uh, that this series has brought out. Yes, in this film and in some other Giallos and into Argento territory too. Oftentimes, like the men aren't always driving. The men are not always. I appreciate the fact that they aren't in positions of power rather all the time in these films. And there, and there are emasculating things like the size of Robert's boat. He's got this little, this little baby motorboat. And there is a little comment about like, well, I couldn't really do much better or something. I want to get a bigger boat. Yeah. I want to get a bigger boat. He's, he's very into getting a bigger boat. He wants a bigger boat, but he, (laughs) but he's not embarrassed to take her there and show her the boat. When you think about Argento deep red and you think about that little tiny red car Oh yeah, yeah. and how, uh, I can't remember what the character's name is where he, his seat's broken. So he's leaning back. It's like a clown car sequence in this. And then in American films, usually the men are in, you know, grumbling, rumbling engines that command a presence when they come into the room. Especially in this era of the muscle car, like for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, it's, it's so refreshing to have as a spectrum of masculinity presented in these films. I think that's a really cool element. Yeah. I mean, they, they have, um, it's repeated several times that he doesn't have the money. His wife does. Um, and then additionally with, uh, Michelle, he's, uh, on the other end, he's constantly going insanely crazy when the police jokingly call him, uh, what Nicole's pimp, Mm, right? Yeah. They, They say that to him at several points. He repeats it back. Um, and it is, you know, because obviously there the emasculation for him is that is her job, right? Yeah. Well, maybe if you wore less velvet, pal, you'd be less mistaken for a pimp. I mean, yeah, I say that wanting that suit, my God, back, it's back to the fashion. <laughs> yeah, can't, cannot, cannot cut the velvet budget. Um, sorry, Chris, it's not going down. They not spent the boat money on the suit. But, but, you know, and we've, we've talked a little bit about this, but not for a while, but like the, those wonderful fabrics and the, yeah. it really is that the juxtaposition of beauty and, you know, carnage in these movies and, and kind of that, you know, the corruption of the, of the richer classes and all of this seems to, I don't know that they're ever, it, most movies aren't saying something specifically about it, but it, they all seem to have these elements in there. Or almost all we've we've seen, yeah. and both of these it. tonight too have a lot of gross sea creature stuff in them. Like this yeah. one has, has has the guy who has the sort of cart with just a big pile of the fish guy, but it's literally just a pile of rotting fish, and and he walks by. He just and he he's walking by. And in, in an area where there's no dock, there's no fishing boats, <laughs> there's no merchants. They are in the middle of apparently nowhere. And this guy is just strolling through like he's on his walk in Central Park here, just with a, a big <laughs> rectangle full of d- fish carcasses. Well, the, well, what is this? Well, to, now that we've come to the fishmonger, I, I want to talk about something because I have I have questions um, you know, so th- there's there's this scene where the fishmonger comes up, and as you say, there's no dock anywhere in sight. But but Robert buys some fresh fish from the local fishmonger with the cart. Okay, okay, sure, he just fresh fish. 
They then, he and Nicole proceed to cook that fish over the fireplace in the house. And by firelight, they sensually feed the fish to one another with their hands like they're fucking strawberries or something. And first of all, I mean, I guess this prefigures nine and a half weeks by more than a decade. But honestly, who eats fish sensually? Well, we've seen sensual goulash. We've seen (laughs) sensual apples. We've seen... Like the, the the weird food trend continues. I'll yes. tell you what. I'll tell you what. We talk about influence on slashers that were to come. This scene may have influenced the centerpiece sequence in the film Heavyweights. Have you ever seen the movie Heavyweights? I have not. I haven't. It's a Disney film that I'm sure would not play today about these kids going to a fat camp. And, and there's a scene where the kids have been saving up candy and stealing it from the adults and stuff. And they all decide to one night have this or orgy around the campfire where they're all dancing around shirtless and rubbing chocolate on themselves and on each other and like feeding each other marshmallows and pies and cakes. And it's one of the most absolutely bizarre sequences I've ever seen in a film. And it treats food in a way that I had never considered food really being treated before. But this, I mean, fish is gross anyway. Fish is revolting as it is. And then, Rubbing it on someone, the the way my note says sensual fish eating by the fire, exclamation point. (laughs) Like there's close ups of Nicole's mouth and then a sloppy handful of fish goes in. And I'm just like, who wants this? Who who thought this was the way to go? Like, it's just. I mean, just honestly, the fish thing, I was just like, it's gross. It's insane. It's, it's gross and it's insane. And I'm just like, what, what has become of my life that I, I I am here to, here to talk about. It's just like, it's amazing. It's uh, meanwhile, Robert comes and goes and Nicole hangs out at this sweet seaside house. I love the house, by the way. Like I would go and live in that house for the rest of my life. And everybody in town is watching her as she goes about her life. Cause you know, honestly, you want to put up your mistress somewhere discreet. Yeah. Put her up in a small town. Cause there's no gossip there. Yeah. The, the other thing is put her in a house with large windows and no curtains. Is the no, there's no window uh, treatments of any kind. No. And, uh, but it makes know. for some terrific peeping. Again. It does, including um, one person who's doing it with a telescope, for goodness sake. Like, they've got full-on telescopic peeping. Um, and and it's – oh, I should mention that Robert shows her a handgun hidden in a secret compartment in the mantle of the fireplace. And we'll just call that Chekhov's secret fireplace compartment because I guarantee you it will come back later. So we had Chekhov's octopus in the last one. Chekhov's octopus. And and without giving too much away, Chekhov's fishmong. In both of these movies, key plot points are are revealed via seafood. It's very Lovecrafty in this stuff. (laughs) Um, so it's, it's like, it, it honestly, Nicole comes to hate living in this little seaside town. And, and uh, honestly, the people there, sometimes it's so weird. It feels like she moved to the town from the wicker man. Um, but you know, it's, it, nevertheless, she still walks around her house in her underwear as without any window treatments. And, uh, Robert promises that he's going to leave his wife and buy a bigger boat, but he makes more headway on the latter than the former. Like he, he at least explores 
explores possibly getting a bigger boat. But one thing I find interesting in this one is that we've got, um, you know, a little more in the, the bird with the crystal plumage where we have a protagonist, right? You yeah. have a single protagonist. She's, uh, you know, she has danger. She's trying to get away from, and you know, it's single protagonist. We're not gonna, we're not gonna flop around between eighteen different characters in this one, right? Nope. That's exactly correct. You know, and 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 uh, you know, we we follow her at least, uh, you know, until. Uh, <laughs> One night when Nicole has a visitor at the house and we can't see the visitor's face because a very conveniently placed lamp. But whoever it is gives Nicole a large amount of cash. And at Robert's office, we see him treating a patient. We actually see him doing work. And apparently he's an eyeball surgeon. uh, And we get a very close up of 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 the eyeball that he's doing work on. And I'm just like, eat your heart out, Lucio Fulci. It's some, it's some top shelf eyeball gore. I oh, will it, say. Is, it, it is, is, it is first class top. eyeball gore. There's no yeah, question. This is, this isn't the J and B of eyeball gore. This is like, <laughs> what are we going to say? Maybe the Cuddy Sark. I don't it's know. A cut, it's, <laughs> gonna, it's at least yes. the Cuddy Sark of eyeballs. Yes. And, and then a figure walks into this, the, the, the clinic, he walks, walks into the room, clearly wearing high heels and shoots Robert in the chest. And then moreover, and a wig and a wig and a wig, a crazy wig. Yes. And moreover, the next day, Nicole's body is pulled out of the water near the house dead. So as you said, we're following a main, main character through the movie until holy shit, we're not. And psycho. It's psycho. And more importantly, Chris, how do you feel about the shoes? The shoes are extraordinary. Yeah, they're, uh, you know, death does walk on high heels. A Mm -hmm. lot of things walk on. And death also has an excellent Foley artist because the sound of those high heels (laughs) with the blind man is like a big deal. And like, just cool, right? I I don't know that it really goes anywhere, but it's just like, it's cool. Well, again, and and that's the thing about this movie is I, I like this movie, but there's things that don't go like there's weird red herring stuff in this movie. Like, for example, like before Nicole turns up dead, she's in like a, a pub and she hears someone talking on the voice box like the killer. And she turns around and there's a priest talking about his sermon on a payphone using this voice box. And I'm like, why is he using that on a payphone? It's not like she heard someone who like had his vocal cords removed. Like, why is he using that in a random pub? It makes no sense. It's like it's just to be a red hair. What about the what about the old guy who's peeping in the window? And usually you see them looking through windows and they might be a little longing or they might be creepy or straight up, whatever. He's doing the Christmas story front of the store, pushing his face against the window <laughs> where his nose is all smashed up. Like he's a little kid who just can't get close enough to that whatever it is on the other side of the window. It's one of the weirdest things. It really is. It really is. It's, I mean, you know, we've, we've had a lot of peepers here and most of them, you know, I, 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 you know, it's, it's understand this guy is just dude. This movie is full of old pervs who have nothing to talk about, (laughs) but Nicole and sex. Yeah. That's absolutely until she turns up dead halfway through. Yeah. And then we start a whole other movie. Like we get introduced that, that to the correct. cops and it's this whole other movie with Inspector Baxter and his his junior partner Bergson and and their assistant who goes by the name Miss Pennypacker. Yep. I swear to God, 
And they say it so many times. It's this ridiculous name that is repeated yep. more times than any other name in the movie. It's also um, when the trench coats emerge. So this is yes, you can you know when you're at a certain point in a giallo when you're seeing more trench coats and the, and here we are. <laughs> yes, indeed. and these they, you know they're good trench. These, these are at least London fog quality trench yeah. coats. Like they're, my they're dad nice. had that London fog. Uh, yeah, oh, that was in the eighties. Very cultured. Yep. Oh yes. Wow, dad. Yep. Yeah. That's anyway. So Robert, oh, I should say first, Michelle shows up in the village as well. And and you'd think, well, that's no, that, that seems coincidental. But he's got an alibi for the time of Nicole's murder. And that alibi is that he was drunk at a bar. Uh, and he's still so drunk the next day, he throws up out a window onto a cop's head. And Terrible the cop drunk. is entirely unfazed by this. Yeah. Terrible it's amazing. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, Robert survives her shooting, and despite the fact that at, at, at when he's at the hospital and he calls out a name, the, that name is Nicole, and he does so in front of his wife, Vanessa, but nevertheless, she seems interested in taking him back, which is kind of amazing. Um, and Robert, holy shit, Robert's got a type, uh, because Vanessa could have been Nicole's aunt or, you know, Mitch older's sister. Like they, you know, he's, he's definitely got a type. I'll give him that. Um, and inspector Baxter concludes that the killer may have used big slabs of ice to keep Nicole's body cold in order to fool the coroner about time of death. And we have this whole section of the movie, which, which by the way, makes Michelle's, uh, alibi all of a sudden, not so alibi alibi-ish. Right. And you think they'd pick up Michelle at that point, but they don't. And there's this whole mid part of the movie, which is that it's so much shoe leather. It's so much bullshit walking around on this investigation. It's, it's like a, it's like one of the, the weaker episodes of Kojak. It's just walking around. Aren't you grateful when it's not there? Doesn't it make you appreciate the movies? Like, Bay of Blood? Yes, absolutely. Here it's like, oh, they're just, it's just walking around. Yeah, I mean, the beginning of this movie is like a sleazy softcore pornography and it ends up being something my parents could watch on CBS. Yeah. It's mind blowing. Yeah. It like, really is. It's the strangest thing. And honestly, this movie's very odd. It, it's, it's, <laughs> you're right. It, it, it begins like a softcore porn and ends up like something that would be like CSI, uh, whatever the, the little village is. I mean, it's, um, you know, and, and, and at least we have, uh, we have, we get ins- inspector Baxter gets Vanessa to admit that she was the one who visited Nicole on the night of her death. And the money that she gave Nicole was for her to leave her husband and clear out. And shortly after this, the killer strikes yet again, this time murdering Vanessa in, I gotta be honest, one of the most brutal killings we've seen in this series so far that, you know, like the degree of violence in this series is increasing with time. And what's amazing is almost all of the movies we've watched have been from 1971. Like it happens so quick. It like ramps up like nothing I've ever seen. Like the January violence compared to the April violence (laughs) that year. Like by August, it's positively gory. And by December, holy shit. Like it's all of this happens in such short fashion that it's not, you're not tracking it by years. You're tracking by months. And it's amazing. Inspector Baxter finds a blue contact lens at the crime scene. 
Uh, and meanwhile, Michelle starts to conduct his own investigation. Uh, at one point, he steals the inspector's car, and the inspector's kind of cool about it. It's so people's behavior in this movie is it's one of the weirdest giallas we've seen so far there, there's a little there's a little game recognizes game from the inspector to michelle is like oh you got my car what can i say there you go <laughs> like most cops are not okay with that like it's uh don't don't go stealing cops cars it'll never end well so honestly, I think at this point, I think we should put in our spoiler line because uh, I think we're 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 getting past the shoe leather where we actually find out who who did it. Um, and the cops they talk to the guy, the blind guy or the semi-blind guy who who Robert Doctor Robert was was working on the night he was shot. It was was treating the night he was shot, and it turns out that that man's eyesight is improving which is why he was seeing Dr. Robert uh, after an accident with the blowtorch. And that accident with the blowtorch happened while he was working with Nicole's father to steal the diamonds. They were opening the safe. And it's it's w- w- amazing. It is an amazing turn uh, uh, of, uh, it's not a coincidence exactly, but holy shit, it's kind of amazing when you find it out. Well, I- I'll say this is the, the way in which... Um all the coincidences at the end become not so coincidental because it's all around Robert and what he was actually doing. Right. Correct. Because of his connections with everyone. But like a lot of movies up until that point, when you find out some of these connections, right. Um, Cause obviously he was connected with that patient and all of this um, up until that point, everything just seems wildly coincidental. Insanely so. And <laughs> as you're riding through the movie itself, it 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 is a little I'd say it would be a problem, except this is a Giallo film where all kind of like logic and investigation. I, I'm just there along for the ride. I, we've sped know. past it's a plot problem about three episodes ago. Like we've <laughs> yeah, we've crossed that signpost. And, and, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's like, okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm with it. And, and the police, as well as Robert and, 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 and Smith arrive at the cottage just in time to stop a fight between Michelle and a guy that we didn't even have a chance to mention who has got a fake hand and is trying on Nicole's clothes. Uh, And does he have anything to do with the mystery? Nope. He just likes trying on Nicole's clothes. And that's, you know, hey, that's fine. That's one of the more normal fucking things in this movie. Like, it's it's like it's more normal than, than you know, either of, of Nicole's strip teases, for Christ's sake. What we learn is that the diamonds were actually hidden in Nicole's necklace and bracelets, unbeknownst to her. And a pair of blue contacts are found on M- Michelle's person. And he tries to get away, but Baxter uses some karate to bring him down. It's a very impressive karate display. And um, and it seems like the case is closed. Oh, Michelle had the blue contact lenses. It's got to be him. Until the fishmonger comes back around and mentions he sold Robert some giant blocks of ice. And Inspector Baxter realizes it was Robert all along, that he, in fact, was the mastermind of the diamond robbery. He killed Nicole's father but couldn't find the diamonds, and he decided to take Smith on as a patient to find out, see if he knew where they were. And that led to him hooking up with Nicole, but she didn't know where she had. She didn't even know that she had them. So... This is Vanessa had told this to Nicole, which is why he had to kill her. And 
And Vanessa decided to shoot her own husband that night, inadvertently giving him an alibi. And it's all of this gets very kindly explained to the police by Robert until he opens Chekhov's secret fireplace compartment, grabs the gun inside, and nearly escapes. But Michelle tackles him and karate chops him in the throat. And they, they win. And they, he wins the fight. And it's all okay from there. Um, the cops take Michelle to the airport and uh, to go home back to France, and they wave like he's going off on the fucking love boat at the like, and and even with the music, it's like, and then oh, this final shot, the final oh shot gosh. of this movie where Inspector Baxter and Bergston turn and gaze lovingly into each other's eyes, and like they hold on this for like. For I like the freeze frame. It's like, like what? There, there was no hint of it before. It's the strangest ending. It's, it's not. I don't even have a problem with it. That the two cops were apparently in love. It's just so out of the blue. It's more out of the blue than the kids blowing away their parents at the end of Bay of Blood. And it's not a freeze frame. They're holding the shot. They're, they're holding they're, they're the holding- shot. <laughs> still as they light the cigarette and gaze at each other this the whole airport thing is incredible because apparently in italy you can just drive onto an airport onto like the tarmac you just drive right out there you get out of your car you want to walk to the plane sure you want to walk over here sure there's not there's nothing there's not even people working there there's just planes and you can just drive right up and then they have this incredibly awkward thing and then it hard ends. It's amazing how this thing wraps up. It is It is both of the movies today. And I didn't realize, because I had never seen Death Walks on High Heels. And it was just, this was what fit together for the schedule. But holy shit, that's serendipity. Because both of them have the two most bizarre endings of of, of the, any of these movies we've, walked, we've talked about so far. Yeah, and, and additionally... Like, they seem very happy. Like, they're going to be bragging to their inspector buddies about what an amazing job they did when they almost bagged the wrong guy. They let (laughs) so many people die. Like, random fishmonger fishmonger guy. They would have totally... They did not exactly Sherlock Holmes this one. No, no. uh, It's... I mean, and and there's so many, like... No movie is more squarely set in the Red Herring District than Death Walks on High Heels. I mean, from the priest with the voice box, uh, that that Robert Matthew is this criminal mastermind and also an eye doctor, so he could treat the damaged eyes of of the guy. Like, if this if if Robert Matthew had been a podiatrist, he would have been shit out of luck. <laughs> like, it's it, it, you know, it's this movie. This movie is. Bon- I have to watch some of Ercole's other giallos because if they're as bonkers as this, um, like I, I have to. I haven't seen them. I have to check them out. Um, so that that I think brings us to the end of this this rather extraordinary episode of <laughs> me another bird with the crystal plumage, um, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us. It is always a delight to have you on. Uh, as as always, when you go, I'll always ask, uh, where can people find you and Reverend, Reverend Entertainment out in the world uh, and on social media? Yeah, if you just look up my name, it's the last name is Beam, B-E-A-H-M, or just Reverend Entertainment, common spelling of Reverend. And yeah, I'm out there. Hit me up if you want to ask me questions about fishmongers. I don't have many answers, but... Uh, 
if you want to talk about jewels hidden in diamond snakes or <laughs> window peeping or Crisco <laughs> rubdowns or uh, you know Italian you style whatever that might be uh, you yeah. know that's <laughs> I'll just direct you right back to Chris. No, thank you for having me on. It's always a blast. Oh, you guys. it's a delight. Yeah, it's Absolutely. Great to have you. And uh and and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Next week we'll be joined by two special guests, Kevin and Aaron from the podcast That Wouldn't Die. And they will be here to discuss two films from Bird with the Crystal Plumage director Dario Argento, The Cat Nine Tales, and Four Flies on Grey Velvet. And again, we thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky, all at Get Me Another Pod. If you've liked the show, tell your friends, If tell your enemies about it, and tell Chris Messina about it if, if you know him, and let him know he needs to have a talk with his dad. Uh, And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when studios say, get me another.